To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. As the great American philosopher Ferris Bueller said, life comes at you fast. So last Sunday morning, we heard from John the Baptist out in the wilderness, railing against the powers of the world and promising fiery direct judgment for those who oppose the Messiah that will follow shortly after him. And this morning, as we hear in Matthew, Jesus has begun a very public ministry. But John is in prison, sending messages to Jesus through his own followers, trying to learn more about the one who is preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the prophets in Israel's history hoped for. He's doing the work of God the Father, bringing healing and hope and wholeness to people in need. Yet, as Matthew has it, John and his disciples are holding back. Now, they have a pretty good reason to be shy. John was preaching and teaching too, and he got locked up. He's out in the desert fasting and raving about judgment in that fetching camel hair outfit. But now he's in Herod's prison And things don't look so good. You know things have gotten really bad when you miss the good old days when you were eating locusts and proclaiming the end of the world. (laughs) So we might be able to understand a little bit of John's confusion about Jesus's ministry. John was fasting to call people to repentance while Jesus is going to dinner parties with Roman tax collectors. John told people unpleasant truths directly to their faces. And Jesus now seems to be the most popular guy around. How can this one be the Messiah John hoped for? So it's not ridiculous to expect that John would have some questions for Jesus. Prophets are notoriously annoying in this way. We run into three prophets on this Sunday, Isaiah and John the Baptist and Jesus. But prophets can be tough company. They have weird habits. They're constantly engaging in these sign acts that make things into symbols for everything else. They almost always say what's on their minds. They're wearing odd outfits. They are discordant voices. You can imagine what it's like, particularly not here at St. Charles, but imagine another church uh, where somebody might not always be able to carry the tune exactly the way they ought to. Uh, Again, not here, elsewhere. Churches you've heard of, maybe. Um, That one voice that's just a little bit out of tune tends to be the one that you can hear best of all. And that is the voice of a prophet. They speak in that discordant tone against the dominant narrative of the status quo, which argues that things have to remain the way that they are for fear of upsetting the careful balance of the world. And the world of Roman-occupied first-century Israel was carefully balanced indeed. 
between the imperial military, the temple authorities, King Herod's local government, and the rival factions feuding within Judaism, there are plenty of people on the scene competing to decide whose voice gets to speak loudest. And that's the world that John and Jesus lived in. John, of course, clearly understands himself to have a prophetic task. He goes out in the wilderness to call people to repentance, to prepare the way for the one who's coming after him. So when Jesus shows up, eating and drinking and carousing with sinners, John probably wonders where the new guy stands. Are you the one or should we wait for another? When questioned like this, Jesus does not respond angrily. He doesn't try to engage John's disciples in a quick game of Hebrew Bibleopoly. He doesn't, he doesn't whip out a Torah scroll and unroll it and start to point to all the places where he comes up. Instead, he points them to the work that he is doing. When they ask who he is, Jesus doesn't give them a title or a plan or a document to read. He simply says to look at the lives of the people that he has touched most closely. If they want answers, they will have to settle for the evidence of transformed lives. Because what Jesus does reveals who Jesus is. It's more than just talk. Convictions are illuminated by the fruit that lives bear. And that's true for Jesus just as it is true for us. As the songwriter Craig Finn said it, you're pretty good with words, but words won't save your life. So words are not enough. Prophets set about trying to help people wake up with their words and then drive them into action to help them realize that things are not the way they have to always be. Sickness, hunger, poverty, and death those are the status quo that have to be opposed and ultimately undone for God's good rule to take over the world. So in Jesus' life and ministry, that reversal, what Isaiah and John and all the prophets hoped for, is actualized and brought to life. The problem, of course, is that the ministry of Jesus is scandalous. <laughs> even for those like John who have been hoping for the Messiah to come. Jesus violates propriety and good social order. He has the outright gall to repeatedly and loudly proclaim that despite all appearances, another kind of world is possible and that another king, in fact, reigns. Jesus is a prophet himself, of course, announcing the bracing closeness of God's presence. Because with him, where he is, God indeed is there. So he's a prophet like Isaiah and John, but he also gives all prophecy the context it needs to be coherent. In him, the hopes and fears of all the years are met. But like a master musician who coaxes the fullest sound from a composer's work, Jesus is the one in whom prophecy reaches a crescendo. John and his disciples get the answers that they are looking for 
in ways that they probably never imagined. And this question is one that we are constantly parsing still in our relationships, in our culture, in our politics. Are you the one that we have been waiting for or should we hope for someone or something else? We ask this question constantly of our career choices and our romantic partners and even of our churches. We even ask the question of ourselves. Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Am, who I, am I who I should be to maximize my happiness? Am I properly positioned to reach my career goals and the proper garage size and general life satisfaction that I have always thought I deserved? We're forever searching for one perfect, all-encompassing solution to all these many varied needs that we have. And we dress this question up in many different disguises, but ultimately whether about our homes or relationships or our character or our careers, we're asking the same thing. Is this all there is? And is it enough? To continually interrogate our lives and our world in this way is not just exhausting. It is to miss what Jesus is telling John's disciples. Open your eyes. See what I am doing. Jesus came into a fallen world to restore all things, such that we can be made partners with God. That purpose, living and working in harmony with the will of God, is powered by the reconciliation that Christ accomplishes. And what he does on the cross and what he does in his life and ministry changes everything so that the old answers about who we are and who God is prove to be wholly inadequate. Embracing Jesus' answer to John's question means bearing fruit in keeping with new life. And that brings about an actual tangible change in the state of the world. If you suppose that this talk about the coming of a kingdom and a new king is strictly theory or just confined to the hearts of individual believers, I would remind you and ask you to look around at the tangible ways that the kingdom is coming among us each and every day. When we give without expectation, when we welcome visitors and strangers, when we feed the hungry, we ourselves become agents of the prophetic shift that Isaiah and John anticipated and that Jesus inaugurated. The opponents of the gospel, if they are clever, always seek to make the kingdom of God's coming into a completely theoretical thought exercise, something ethereal up here in the clouds. But this is not so. The gospel is coming in concrete ways. The judgment that we heard John so loudly shouting about on the banks of the Jordan last week is necessary because the gospel itself is judgmental. And to bring it into the world requires clear decisions. Judgment holds a mirror up to our lives and to our world so that we cannot ignore what we see there. It shows us that sin is real and deadly 
And it puts our false idols on trial and shows that they offer little worth worshiping. And when we learn to see rightly, the judgmental gospel drives us to repentance and to the truth. You see, we talk all the time about Jesus as if he is just the friendliest version of God. He's wearing a bathrobe and sandals. He has very long feathered hair, walking around on the beach often. And Jesus, in that view, is just affirming the choices of people around him. Just calling them to be the fullest version of themselves. To realize the potential goodness that was always within them and to trust God to sort the rest out. But nothing could actually be further from the truth because Jesus invited people to see with holy new eyes and to recognize that they were living their lives radically out of step with the truth that created the world. So Jesus is not just judgmental. He invites us to judge ourselves by his standard. And he condemns the false promises that sometimes blind us to the truth. He called out systems that would sustain the powerful at the expense of the suffering of the poor and the hungry. He announced that those who were proud and rich and full of good things would not be first in his kingdom. And that those like Herod and Caesar who built empires on the backs of the poor, could expect a final reckoning to come. Jesus speaks these words of scandalous judgment against the false belief that you can live a decent human life by ignoring the suffering of the world and claim to be a good, moral, religious person. His words and his deeds are a scalding condemnation against the empty gestures of a sentimental and self-absorbed culture that exalts the appearance of righteousness over the reality of sacrifice. Which brings us rather nicely back to Advent, and then, of course, on to Christmas. Because Advent comes every year to remind us that in the person of Jesus Christ, we are introduced to the one who we cannot control or manipulate, or buy. His will is not ours to dictate. He is not limited by our expectations or bound by our desires and is not subject to our selfishness. At its very best, Advent takes us out of ourselves, sometimes almost by force. And it demands that we learn to see past our own needs and experience and recognize that our expectations do not set the boundaries for God. And we have to open our hearts up to receive the true joy that comes from knowing him. We have to learn over and over and over again to receive Christ as he is offered to us and not as we wish him to be. We have to learn to see what he is doing and vow to go and join him there, where he is, among those who have needs and dreams that you and I may not share, but that God delights to grant. Among other things, this means quite concretely that in this season of outrageous excess, we must find ways to remember those who are too easily forgotten. 
because we follow a prophetic risen Lord whose life started in a stable and ended on a Roman execution stake because his life and ministry cannot be properly understood apart from solidarity with the outcast and the downtrodden and the neglected, whose suffering he explicitly desires still to relieve. What Jesus is doing, even now, is work to promote mercy. And those works of mercy are not incidental to being his disciple. They are, in fact, paradigmatic. These are signs of the ways that his followers are meant to live in the world. This Advent, it's important for us to remember that Jesus was not just prophet, priest, and king in separate roles, but all together and all at once. The Lord came into the world to judge it and to transform it for the better for our sakes. The prophetic judgment of the gospel is like a lantern lit in a dark room of the world. It casts light and warmth and it draws us in closer because it offers comfort. But it can also sting if you're not ready for the heat. Jesus stands in opposition to the proud, the well-fed, and the comfortable, even when you and I are those people. Like John's disciples, we may think it's very obvious whose side we're on. But Jesus reminds us that there is more to this business of the incarnation than just swaddling clothes and doting shepherds. This is the answer that Jesus gives to John's disciples in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's the answer that he offers to us even now. If you want to know who he is, or if he is the one, look at what he has done. And if you wish to be his disciple, you must go and do likewise. Christ has revealed to us the very heart of God and has shown us that he is one we can trust and that in him the hope of every dream will be fulfilled. The blind will see, the lame will walk, lepers will be cleansed, the deaf will hear, the dead will be raised, and the poor will have good news proclaimed to them. This Advent, as at the last day, he is coming again. We have waited for him so long, like Isaiah and John before us. So let us make our hearts ready now to receive him with great joy and to follow him into the world where he is already working for the good of everyone. Amen.